Hi everybody, David here. Um, just before the episode begins, I would like to make a announcement that 64 A Chess Podcast is now sponsored by Chessable, the best chess improvement app. Um, I've been gone for about a month. A lot has happened in my own personal life, just in terms of work and other things. So uh, I kind of took a break from the podcast. I hope you guys didn't miss me too much. But uh, I'm hoping this month to release a lot more episodes. I have a bunch of interviews planned for March and April. So, yeah, I took a bit of a break. I hope that's okay. Um, and especially the last week or two, I've been working on, uh, you know, this sponsorship deal with uh, Chessable. So Chessable will be the main sponsor of the podcast going forward. I'll be doing, in the short term, giveaways and uh, community organizing with them. So I've made Elite Chess Club. Uh, it's somewhere on my Twitter, it's 64 Podcast Fan Club, I think it's called. Um, so go check that out. It's the Lee Chess Group. Um, and we'll be doing team events there, maybe for courses and stuff like that. We'll, I'll be doing giveaways on Twitter. And in general, I'll be plugging um, chess pool courses, which I've been using since I basically started playing chess in 2018. Uh, I'm a big fan of their work, basically. And uh, when they approached me, I was just really happy to, uh, to work with them. So I'm really excited to see where this goes um, for the next few months. And We'll take it from there. So nothing's really going to change in the short term. You guys might notice that uh, there's a new podcast logo. I'm going to be redoing the uh, the podcast introduction as well. I'm really trying to modernize um, and uh, kind of refresh this. So I guess in short, this is just a reintroduction. Maybe for those of you who are new coming from Chessable. Hi, I'm David. Really excited to meet you guys. And uh, I hope you enjoy this episode with International Master Yuri Kukun. He's from Ukraine. We talked about the Ukraine situation. Um, we recorded this on March 4th. Who knows what's going to happen uh, in the next few days, months, uh, years, um, but I'm praying for peace, and uh, I think this was a really enjoyable conversation. So, yeah, so that's all I wanted to say. So, really, from the bottom of my heart, thank you, Chesspool, for uh, taking a chance on this podcast. Uh, I'm excited to grow with you guys. As always, I want to thank AimChess for sponsoring the podcast. You can use code DAVID30 to get 30% off your first month with AimChess. Uh, so, go check that out if you haven't already. And uh, lastly, I want to also just, uh, because I forgot during the uh, podcast recording, um, I want to thank my uh, Patreon supporters, specifically uh, Paul Harbright for being a platinum patron. You can check us out at uh, patreon.com slash 64 podcast uh, if you want to support the channel financially. Uh, I would really appreciate it. Uh, minimum tier is like a dollar a month. So check that out if you if you have the time or the will. And um, as always, I just thank all of you for listening. I, I've been doing this for almost a year. I'll be celebrating the year anniversary at the end of the month. So uh, I'm just really excited to see where the podcast goes from here and, and beyond. So uh, thanks for listening and I uh, hope you enjoy the episode. For a chess podcast, I am your host, David, coming at you live from Copenhagen, Denmark. I've been away for almost a month, and I know that, and a lot has happened in the last month. Uh, joining me to make sense of some of the recent news and talk about his career as a chess player is international master Yuri Krikun. Yuri, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, David. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so uh, the way this came about was uh, I... Uh, I tweeted about a giveaway 
Um, I guess we should preface this by saying that as of recording this video, uh, Russia is invading Ukraine. It's very violent. Um, it's pretty heinous. Uh, the repercussions of the chess world have been enormous. Uh, certainly beyond the chess world is, you know, this mass refugee crisis. Um, many innocent people are dying. Many Russian soldiers are dying. Many Ukrainian soldiers are dying. It's just a disaster. To put it mildly, uh, Russia has kind of been being sanctioned to death. Um, so, you know, I am not a journalist. I'm not a politician. Um, certainly, I have uh, pretty strong opinions about uh, about what's going on right now. But uh, you're you're uh, you're Ukrainian, actually, and now you live in the States. But um, but what have the last few days uh, been like for you? Well, probably just like for anyone from Ukraine, it's been horrible. You know, since the events of 2014, when uh, we had the revolution in Crimea was annexed, obviously our relationship with Russia, not with the Russian people, but with the Russian government have not been the easiest because of course, well, when the Soviet Union, <coughs> sorry, when the Soviet Union fell apart, it was, you know, still completely different. But uh, to be honest, even when I have uh, seen Putin's speech about Donetsk and Lugansk and recognition of the territories, and uh, read the news about that, I would have never believed it and say, you know, 10 hours before the war started, I would have never believed this could actually happen. It's unimaginable that Kiev, that has been called the mother of all Russian cities, and the city where in the year 988, we started Christianity and the Christian tradition for all the Slavic, you know, places, cities, and countries as being bombed by Russia. But, well, that's the reality we're living in right now. And uh, the truth is that uh, these events are becoming more and more violent and more and more horrible every day. Um, when the war started, the enemy was bombing the you know infrastructure airports, and obviously that's already bad enough. And the soldiers are dying; that's already terrible enough. Um, and it's you know even more; it's even worse because if you think about it, of course, well, any war is terrible, and I don't mean to downplay any wars that ever happened. But, you know, you need to realize that a lot of the soldiers that have been sent to war by Putin and a lot of soldiers that are defending our country on our side are 18 years old, 20 years old. And a lot of them, well, obviously our soldiers, you know, they have no choice. They're defending our land. Uh, but the Russian soldiers are being sent there. They don't even know what's happening. They, many of them surrender. They're saying they even had no clue they were going to Ukraine. And... Obviously, well, if they shoot us, we have to shoot them, right? We have no choice. But, uh, you know, these kids, their parents and, you know, our parents, they were born in the same country and they share the same culture and language. So it makes it even more terrible, in my opinion. It's more or less like, you know, the well, any kind of war where the same nation is killing each other. So this is terrible. And in the last days, as you know, well, Russians have been bombing the civilian houses. And yesterday, literally, I was... Uh, I was actually having a few chess lessons and I, you know, can't help it. Unfortunately, I admitted it to my students. I've been checking news every, you know, 20 minutes. But uh, there was a fight at a um, nuclear plant in one of the Ukrainian cities, Zaporizhia. It is about 350 miles down, the south, down south from Kiev. And essentially what happened is that there was a fire at a nuclear plant because the Russians ended up shooting this plant. And they were inciting the firefighters in. And our prime minister had <coughs> claimed that if there is a well breakout and if there is actually an explosion, 
the fire would be six to ten times more. I mean, the sorry, the explosion would be six to ten times more powerful than Chernobyl, essentially making all the Europe European continent uninhabitable. So, it is you know, our nation is now going through some extreme pain. But really, I think a lot of people in the world, in in Europe, I mean, the world has been amazing. I think to Ukraine in terms of you know all the support people gave. But uh, I think a lot of people just don't recognize how bad and how ugly things can get in the next few days or weeks. But I mean, having a lot of friends and family in the country, I mean, I just don't know what to say. Everyone is just, you know, well, doing whatever they can. Now, where where in Ukraine is your family like situated? Uh, overwhelmingly in Kiev, but uh-huh. in some other regions too, but overwhelmingly in Kiev. So are so like what is what is the situation in in Kiev I guess uh for you know some I know people are kind of following this some more so than others but like what is the situation in Kiev right now from well, a personal <coughs> view Yeah well I mean it has not been definitely as bad as in some of the more eastern cities and for example the second second biggest Ukrainian city Kharkov which is actually you know I mean it it is just so crazy because Kharkov is a Russian-speaking city, and you know I grew up speaking Russian too. And Kiev, when I was born, was a Russian-speaking city, overwhelmingly. Now, definitely less so because I think a lot of people both, you know, moved there from the western regions and started just kind of picking up more Ukrainian. But Kharkov, being you know the most one of the most Russian-speaking cities in the country, has been bombed devastatingly. You know, over the last few years, there is this video that the entire world saw of a bomb landing on a Freedom Square there. Well, Kiev has not been doing nearly as badly, but yeah, there are some, you know, bomb alarms and there there were some, you know, separate cases. But I mean, thankfully, so far, okay, compared to other regions. And has um and has your has your family decided whether they're going to stay or leave? Because I know that many people are still boarding trains uh, and trying to get out. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's very hard when there's you know a bomb threat every night. But uh... yeah, I think it is. Well, it, it, it is obviously a question. I, I, I think right now staying is safer because, as you know, well, for example, to drive to the border with, say, Poland or Hungary could take, you know, say, 10, 12 hours anyway. And uh, now probably with all the traffic or maybe even some, you know, roads being broken or blown up somewhere or with, you know, huge lines on the border or with a probability of meeting some, I don't know, some block post of some army. I mean, Ukrainian army, which is not bad, but could be stressful, or Russian army, which could be very bad, or some, you know, people who want to take advantage of situation and rob someone. I mean, it's not, I would imagine that (coughs) if you have, I mean, obviously it depends on the person, but I would imagine for a lot, it would be safer to stay now, but it's it's hard to say that. Yeah, I mean, this is a, it's really, it's heartbreaking to see, especially how, how much this has deteriorated in the last few months. I remember when I was in uh, New York, I went back to New York, that's where I'm from. And uh, this was back in December, but um, I think the embassies for Russia, Belarus and Ukraine are all in DC, but they share a consulate building. And I remember even in December that Ukraine took its flag down because it didn't want to be associated with Russia and Belarus. Like in, and this was in America, which I thought was pretty jarring at the time. And certainly it's, uh, it's devolved into like a full-blown humanitarian crisis. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit also about the the chess world response, um, because I I was kind of very surprised, uh, you know, considering that FIDE, for example, has so many Russian sponsors that the you know cutting off ties with all the sponsors. I mean, that sends a very strong message in my view. So what 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 you know, as a chess player, obviously you know you being Ukrainian, I think that chess really isn't the most important thing. But but like what what uh, what message do you get from from these actions that FIDE is taking? Yeah, well, you know. Everyone hates on Russia and Russians right now. 
And, you know, of course, I completely understand, you know, what's the problem with the Russian government, right? But at the same time, I think, well, a lot of Russian people have not done really anything bad. And I understand that, well, say that's how sanctions work, right? You want to, you know, sanction the entire nation so that they go and do something about their leader. But, I mean, speaking of, say, FIDE, well, FIDE is being led by Dvorkovich right now, right? And I think that, objectively speaking, Dvorkovich has been probably the best FIDE president that I've ever seen. At least in my, well, I mean, during my lifetime. And I think that FIDE has made considerable progress actually moving away from just being, you know, solely dependent on the Russian sponsors and be becoming more westernized. So I think they've actually made a lot of progress in this direction objectively during the last years. And but of course, at the same time, a huge part of the you know events, especially say event, big events like candidates or Olympiads would be sponsored by the Russian companies, like, for example, Gazprom, right? The gas company. So definitely, it must have been a very painful decision. And of course, a lot of people now are, you know, of an opinion, and I think this opinion is completely understandable that Vorkovich has to step down simply for, I mean, first of all, as someone who has been, you know, one of the closest people to Medvedev, the prime minister and in the past the president of Russia. And, you know, he himself, I'd, it's it's not obvious what his opinion on this events is, right? And I think that, you know, him being a Russian, right, even if he spoke actively against the war, it is just problematic for him to be in this position because, well, simply even because of all the sanctions, right? I mean, how can you, you know, promote the values of an international organization if no one shakes hands with the representatives of your country right now, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's unfortunate, if a, especially if a person is not, you know, does not support such a standpoint, which, I mean, hopefully he doesn't, of course, but that's kind of how the world works, right? So I'm sure that a lot of, you know, sport organizations all over the world are right now going through a very difficult time. Of course, hopefully, well, not as difficult as the country is, our country is, but uh, yeah, I think that what FIDE did, I think there wasn't much of a choice, you know? And uh, also, you know, uh, it was equally surprising to see, uh, well, first of all, some European countries are banning Russian visas, period, which could be problematic for things like the candidates, etc., for the Grand Prix. But even, uh, you know, having these right now, we have a Grand Prix going on in Belgrade and none of the Russian players can play under a Russian flag. Um, and I, I think it's quite remarkable. Like, I don't know if you saw this interview with Alexander Grishuk. Yes, uh, I have. Yes. And what was shocking to me, again, not to get super political, but I think Grishuk has always been, I guess, more or less in the pro-Russia camp. And, yes, uh, absolutely. But there's, there is a, I mean, clearly, I don't think any of the, the Russian players have been, maybe Fedosev has been playing pretty well, but aside from him, I don't think anybody's really been playing too well in this, in this Grand Prix. Any of the Russian players, and Grishuk <coughs> kind of spoke with, uh, uh, if you haven't, uh, to those of you listening to the podcast, like, if you haven't seen this interview, it's must-watch. I think it's, uh, Grishuk gives a, he was very rudely cut off by the interview, too, I might mm-hmm. add. But, um, yeah, and also, I think his, his wife was also Ukrainian-born, Katarina Lagno. Uh, yes, correct. Um, yeah, a little more just about this Ukraine. What 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 is your take on uh, on Sergey Karyakin too? Because I know he's gone from you know world chess championship challenger to uh, you know resident Twitter clown and you know matter of uh, weeks. So yeah, I mean I don't know. Like, what, do you? Th- I know that a lot of people have been kind of engaging with him on Twitter and you know trying to flame him. But what, what is your what is your opinion on? Because I know he was yeah, born in Ukraine. Yeah, to be honest, I don't even know what to say. You know, the thing is that. My opinion has always been, and it has not changed. Well, for example, Karyakin in 2009 changed the duration from Ukraine to Russia. And a lot of people would scream, that's treason, that's awful. 
I personally do not see literally anything wrong with it because I think that, you know, lifetime lifespan of a professional athlete is not that long, right? And if, you know, you happen to be born in a country, I mean, you don't choose where you were born. So if you happen to be born in a country which cannot offer you the best conditions, I think it's all right if you want to move, just like many people want to move for a job. I think that's fine, you know, but at the same time, the idea of supporting warriors, I just can't comprehend how that's possible. You know, and so that just asks me to, uh, you know, I mean, I'm just asking myself a question, right? Because understandably, <coughs> the propaganda is Russia, in Russia right now is very strong. And the amount of opposition channels or, you know, online, yeah, online websites is being actively decreased. Like, for example, um, I think yesterday, day before yesterday, say, banned the two biggest ones, Dorst and Echo Moskvi. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's called, well, in English, we can translate as rain or echo of Moscow. And uh, now there are some laws such as you are not allowed to call this war. If you want to publish any media, you have to say the military operation. And so, you know, understandably, a lot of, say, older people who are 50, 60, 70, they mostly maybe watch TV, some governmental channel. And if you watch a channel and you're being told, you know, we're just going to, you know, well, do the right things and maybe you believe it. You know, but I would imagine that anyone who is, say, 25 or 30 years old, who is somewhat familiar with the concept of Internet, right, has more than one way of gathering information. So, you know, I <coughs> find it very sad that people, you know, even well, older people, right, who are, say, 60 now, who watch TV and who really believes this, you know, support the sections. But at the same time, I mean, this is very sad, right, but you understand where it's coming from. And it doesn't make it any less sad. But for a younger person who has all the means to, you know, acquire <coughs> all the information they possibly want, I mean, I can't understand if he is doing it just to keep his status or money or if he do, do, is doing it because he believes it or both. But, well, I mean, this is awful. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, yeah, him and uh, there are some other Russian players who I think are, are now they're actually being sanctioned by FIDE as well. Yeah, I, I, I do uh, completely agree. I think, you know, understanding being uh you know patriotic i guess even on the immoral side you can kind of understand for, to some degree but this is a guy who's i mean basically championing uh war uh very very uh uneven war i should say in terms of you know military strength and whatever so although ukraine is they're fighting very valiantly and um i don't know i mean obviously it's very early to tell but uh how how do you how do you see this uh all ending yeah, to be honest, you see, I well, there are a few perspectives on this, right? I mean, if 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 we were spectating a war in some country which you know is not connected to you personally at all, then well, you just feel horrible for people, right? But uh, say in my case, well, I also have the family and friends there, you know. So with the problem is right now that. And, you know, we, we might not want to become political experts, right? But the problem is, you know, for both countries, I mean, well, in Russia, clearly, say Putin wants to stay in power, right? So, you know, while obviously stopping, you know, would be a good thing to do. Well, I mean, you know, if we want to analyze the situation objectively, I just don't see how he can, right? And how he will. I mean, clearly, it doesn't look like he wants to, right? And on the other hand, well, <coughs> obviously, the Ukrainian government, well, we don't want to you know, make any concessions, right? Or say, concede any territories or anything, right? So to be honest, I feel like there is a big likelihood either of some negotiations happening and, you know, 
Russia climbing since they got what they wanted and stopping, or unfortunately, and I'm really sad to say this, but unfortunately, of the situation escalating extremely. And if you know, because really, a lot of people in the world right wrote about well, why is Putin doing this? Because what he has been doing before, say with Crimea, I mean, obviously, as a Ukrainian, well, you know, we did not exactly appreciate it, you know, but I mean, at the same time, you know, I think from the some completely, you know, app. <coughs> you know, neutral and absent absent perspective, right? I mean, his actions, you know, they were well-timed and he could afford to get away with them, right? If that makes sense. You know, he took Crimea, there were some sanctions, okay, and a few years they got lifted, no problem. So really, it is just crazy that he went down this route, right? Which is a point of no return. So, I mean, is he, you know, there are some theories that he went crazy in the last two years. I mean, in that case, well, what stops him from nuking us, right? So, you know, this is very scary. And so I feel, to be honest, that, as it goes on and as Ukraine keeps standing their ground, I think that it's likely that there will be either some peaceful outcome quickly or extreme escalation, which I'm, of course, very scared of because, well, you know, it's my it's my country. Yeah, that's, I think, the the, the, the threat of nuclear war, especially like a guy like Putin, who's, as you said, like uh, perfectly, he's really kind of in a corner right now. He has no allies, basically, except for like Eritrea, North Korea. I know there's there's this UN resolution that, you know, countries like China and India abstained from voting for him. But practically speaking, I mean, nobody's really on his side in this invasion. But he also has the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. Um, and all it takes is is uh, one pers- invented threat or some perceived aggression from NATO and for this to escalate wildly beyond any of our uh, worst nightmares. So I'm, I'm this is, I think, what everyone is kind of scared of. Even I mean, I, I have some distant family in Ukraine as well, in Ternopil. And um, uh, my mom was born there. My grandparents were both, uh, they met there. So it does, it does hit a little uh, close to home for me as well. And um, even though I've never been there, I, I actually had always wanted to go, but. Uh, I guess uh, not now. Yeah, not now. Um, yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, I, I'm praying for peace. I know that today there's a second round of negotiation that's supposed to happen tonight. So, you know, stay tuned. I mean, and, and like I said, uh, you know, I'm doing this, uh, this tweet, I, I did this tweet, uh, on my Twitter at 64 podcast, by the way, if you want to follow. Um, but, uh, yeah, if, if you tweet at me within the week that I, uh, release this episode, uh, with, um, proof of a donation to any, you know, Ukrainian charity of your choice, you can also find, uh, Yuri tweeted some good charities to follow, uh, and keep your eyes on that. Uh, you'll be entered in a giveaway to win, uh, Yuri's uh, course on the accelerated Queen's Indian defense. So, uh, you know, that's that's how I'm going to try to help for now. And uh, certainly I'm going to uh, I'll donate at some point as well. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's tough. I, I really and I, I really feel horrible seeing, you know, you see these videos of like, uh, you know, Ukraine, actually, they just won the uh, I think the European team championship, right? Exactly. Yeah. And now you see these guys who are like literally in, in combat gear and, you know, in Kiev and or all you know in the outskirts of the city like that that to me is just astonishing like even these guys who are you know in their 40s and 50s and it's it's really uh it's 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 unbelievable i mean it's, certainly i know a lot has been said about uh, oh how come people don't care about other conflicts but uh you know there is there is something to be said about the fact that this really does feel like it's on the border of of europe um and uh i i it's probably bad that the world hasn't cared about let's say you know again not to get super political but america invaded iraq and nobody really stopped them and it was also uh, murderous, like bordering on genocidal war, and nobody really cared. So, uh, I don't think it's bad that people are bringing attention, but I, I, I really just hope that there's going to be some peaceful solution that that Putin stops because I think you, you hit it on the head. I don't really know how this ends, to be honest. And you know, the problem is, I mean, again, not to get too far, right? And I don't want 
you know, after saying what I'm about to say to be called a traitor, right, by the Ukrainian, you know, people who watch it. But you see, the thing is, I mean, both parties, you know, if, if you don't speak of it from, I mean, obviously war is horrible, but if you just even, you know, speak of, say, what they want politically, right, because Ukraine says, well, you need to leave, right, we leave all our, our territories, recognize Crimea, that's ours. And Russia says, well, you need to recognize Crimea as ours. You know, well, obviously, neither party will accept all the conditions of the other party unless they literally have no other choice. They run out of troops, you know. So, you know, I think that if, say, our president could stop this war by recognizing Crimea as, Rus as Russian, you know, obviously, you know, the reality is, I mean, first of all, I don't even think that's valid, right? Because, you know, say someone points a gun at your head and then you sign a document, well, you can always go and shoot him later and say, you know, it was under severe duress, right, and hardship. So it's not valid. So really, if there was a way to stop this this way, for example, you know, and then, well, I think that sanctions will just, you know, do a lot of damage in Russia and cause a lot of protests, right? And then Ukraine can challenge that decision, you know, a year later or five or 10, because anyway, likely, you know, there is no way to get Crimea back, right? Unless, you know, there is some insane amount of political changes in Russia, right? Well, I personally, you know, would see it as this kind of outcome is a good thing, because again, you need to keep in mind that I think of a country for sure, but I also think of the fact that, well, if someone, you know, sends a rocket, you know, to the place where my best friends live or where, you know, my mother lives, I would not be very happy about that, right? And that's, well, you know, huge. <clears throat> and so, you know, I mean, I think that if there is a way to reach peace right now, even with some concessions, which are not real concessions, objectively, like say Crimea, well, I mean, I would see this as a good outcome again, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's good that we are doing this podcast in English, because I think that if I said it in Ukrainian or Russian, you know, I would get a hundred angry messages, right, saying that I'm, a, you know, an idiot, but, uh, you know, really, I mean, it's all about, well, how many lives are will be lost, right, how many more lives will be lost, because, well, I mean, right now, if Russia starts this, you know, martial law and starts conscripting people and sending them to war, if they'll send a million troops, we'll, we'll have another million deaths or two or five. I mean, this is beyond, you know, every day is awful, but I mean, this is just getting more and more awful, you know, already like what, you know, what, 10,000 people died, 15, I mean, do we need, you know, 150 now? So, I mean, at some point, well, there has to be some solution. And if we, you know, there is an army on the other side that just keeps sending people in and keeps sending the weapons in and might end up using nukes, well, I mean, there has to be some outcome. But then, on the other hand, maybe they don't want that outcome, maybe they want everything, and then, well, we cannot surrender everything either. So it is it is a very difficult situation. Yeah. I mean, and certainly there's also just the risk of, I know that NATO is meeting today to discuss a no-fly zone. I mean, you know, Russia could perceive that as aggression and start attacking mm -hmm. NATO countries. I mean... This is uh, it's really it's it's really scary times we're living in. So I yeah, and certainly I mean the fear that I have um is that Ukraine could sign a treaty like the one you described, and then Putin just says, oh well, you know I still perceive some pro aggression in a few weeks later, and then just goes right exactly. back. So you're not really uh you're not really dealing with the guy who wants to play fair. I think um so. I mean, I don't know what the solution is. I'm not a politician. I'm not a journalist. I, I, I don't know what's best, but uh, I, I, I think it is very valuable right now um, to hear from someone who's, you know, connected to the country. And, who, you know, I, th I think uh, you've had some uh, very wise words so far. So, um, yeah, I just want to thank you for coming on and, and talking about that for a bit. Um, sure. I do, I do want to uh, pivot to some, uh, some more, uh, I guess, distracting news about chess and whatnot, because you are a... Uh, you're quite an esteemed Chessable author, uh, and 64, a chess podcast, is now sponsored by Chessable. Um, I'll be talking about that more later, but uh, just uh, why don't you just 
How many courses have you written for Chessable? I know you've wrote this one on the Queen's Indian. I did the short and sweet, I think, like two years ago. Very, very, uh, very uh, comprehensive. Even the short and sweet was just completely free on Chessable, by the way. Uh, it's like 30 lines or whatever. And I, I was able to go right out of the gate and start playing some Blitz games. So, so how many courses have you written? Yeah, well, <coughs> we had already published five full courses wow. and then, of course, several short and sweets. And now when more is coming around, I finished publishing it. I'm sorry, I finished writing it. And we're now in the process of uh, doing all the editing and beta testing. And, well, hopefully it will come out very shortly, maybe next month or maybe in a month. So, yeah, and hopefully there are some more to come. Yeah, of course. And uh, your courses are among the, the highest rated on the, on the, webs on the website. So you've, you've written uh, the Reverse Queen's Indian, One Night of Three, which I think came out very recently. Correct, in January, um, yeah. Right. Um, and I think, yeah, so there's this one. There's the Accelerator, like Russell Limo Attack. There's this Queen's Indian Defense. Uh, dynamic Italian a game and uh, one e five a full repertoire for black. Uh, so this is uh, there's something for everybody really, and I think even your courses are also designed for a wide range of levels too, which is uh, they're not quite the the lifetime repertoires. I don't think they think they're more um, more practical for the average club player. So you know when I started playing chess myself, right? So, I mean, I, I, I played chess as a kid. I was like three years old. I knew how to play, but I never started actually studying it until 2011 or the 2011. I was like 12 and a half. And so, you know, back then, and it might sound really weird to people who are new to chess, but there was no such thing as chessable or no such thing as chess 24 or no such thing as slit chess. And barely such a thing as chess base. There was chess base, like chess base nine, I think, or chess base eight or whatever, you know, with maybe half of the features. And well, <coughs> Very, very, you know, say no else is zero, right? I think no stock was yet. So, you know, a lot less stuff than what you currently know, a lot less publishing houses. And so generally speaking, you know, what you would do to study theory, right? You would take some book, 500 pages, and then, well, you would, you know, read it. And my coach has always told me, hey, don't do it this way, right? I mean, it's not very practical. But I thought, okay, well, but some grandmasters wrote these books, right? I mean, they must know what they're doing. Well, I must know what I'm doing too. So I, you know, should just follow what they wrote. But it was very difficult, right? And frankly, not very effective. And so, you know, in my opinion, there's one huge misconception in uh, the chess world about what chess books are meant for and what, what's the purpose, and especially the opening books. And here's what I mean. So realistically, you know, there's, say, 10% of the variations, right, in any books that you'll be seeing in most of the games, right? Or you can say Pareto distribution, like 80-20, right, right? So really, <coughs> you know, you maybe need to study 20% of these lines or frankly, even less. But then you see, like, for example, if I teach a private student and I give them 10% of the variations and he sees them most of the time, and then he sees some other line, then, well, I can either show it to him or he can look it up and then there's no problem. But can you imagine if someone wrote a book which is not 400 pages, but 40, and it had only 10% of variations? Well, I mean, people will scream, right? They will say, they'll complain, they'll say, hey, it's bad, it's not thorough, what did this author do? Nothing is covered, I have no idea what to do against all the sidelines, this is awful, you know? And I mean, I understand where the sensation is coming from, it's not unfair or unreasonable. But then comes another problem, and the another problem is that <laughs> what will, what do the you know good diligent authors do? Well, they cover everything, literally everything. You know, what if someone blunders their queen? What if it's checkmate? And they cover everything. And then what happens is that well, you end up with you know eight hundred pages of theory or two thousand trainable variations. 
And then people look at it. Oh my God, there's no way I can learn this. There's no way I can even learn 10% of this. I'm not going to even try. Or I'll try. Or the worst part is that someone thinks, hey, I'll try. And then they just spend literally three years, you know, studying this. I mean, if you have 2000 variations, you know, like you study, say, 10 a day, you know, it takes like six, seven years. <laughs> I mean, like, what is that? And so in my opinion, you know, really, this is something that I want to encourage everyone out there who is listening, who is studying just on their own, or maybe with a coach who hasn't talked about that. I want you to understand that really, while thoroughness and diligence are good things, and they're very encouraged, you know, most opening books, 95% of them are written because the authors have no choice. They're written like an encyclopedia. And you want to look things up in an encyclopedia, you don't want to memorize the entire encyclopedia. That doesn't make any sense. And so my focus has been during the last years and last courses, especially my last course, I ended up writing a huge chapter on bone structures that can arise in the course uh, throughout the entirety of it. And I annotated over 30 model games in that course on one night of three. And this theoretical part was actually very small. And uh, <coughs> because somehow I well wrote it in this somewhat un unusual way, it took me a while to finish. But uh, generally, yeah, I mean, while there's, you know, a lot of people like thousands variation long courses, my courses are becoming smaller and smaller. And for the upcoming French course, before writing it, I said, if it's more than 200 variations, I'll just start deleting half of them. You know, I just don't, don't need this much. We cannot handle that. And so now, well, we're in the process of editing it. And I mean, it's somewhere around there. But generally, generally, yeah, my preference is for club players with realistic expectations who don't have 10 hours a day and who don't want to get frustrated is, okay, we need to keep it to a reasonable size, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you, you hit it on the money. And that's something that I've only, you know, I've been using Chessable, uh since... 2018 since I, I've only been playing chess for like three years and um I remember like I, I downloaded some short and sweet this is back when I think John Bartholomew owned the company or whatever this is a long long time ago and I downloaded some some maybe it wasn't a short and sweet but some free course with a couple of lines for some opening I don't even remember what but then over the pandemic I I bought this Queen D8 Scandinavian course by John Bartholomew and I learned the whole thing because it was also about like 200 lines but throughout that course, he was also emphasizing structures and stuff like that, which I think is really good because when you get one of these lifetime repertoires, if you're if you're like, you know, 1200, aside from maybe, you know, the first uh, beyond move four, I mean, it's going to just be the Wild West. I mean, you're not going to get anything after learning some of these like, you know, 20 move deep variations. I mean, they're, they're so my approach to these all, all chessable courses are really to just treat them like books that you read. And you'll remember the critical lines because you'll see them the most. And then, you know, the rest are just for reference and you can use those ideas because, I mean, there's a symmetry to chess, like you can transpose into things, or maybe there's a h4, h5, but the ideas will always be the same. So yeah, I think that's that's on the money. So that's um, I guess would you say that's like kind of the the philosophy behind your your courses is just to make them digestible and and more about ideas than like structures. You mentioned pawn structures, for example. Yeah, exactly. Because well, first of all, I can guarantee is that I mean the idea, and you know, look, I you know became an international master a bit over a year ago and kind of retired. Well, not retired. I plan plan playing some chess, but I'm mostly teaching. So people can say I'm rusty and I'm talking nonsense. But I can guarantee is that even at a master level, there's way more games than people think when people start playing on their own on move six or on move eight. And it's not like they're completely clueless playing, say, Fisher chess, you know, <laughs> some new position. Maybe they know the structure very well, but not the exact theory. Or some move order is a bit weird and they just know the ideas, you know. But it also happens that we follow a certain move along theoretical variation. 
But mostly what happens is that when there, when title players, and I'm not talking about Caruana, you know, I have no idea how, you know, the absolute, of course, unique, you know, brands of top five, top 10 players work, right? But I have worked as a second of players in top 100. And I have, a, I mean, I played a lot of people, right, at 2600. So I have idea how people, you know, think at that level. A lot of them would just review a particular, you know, part of chess, right? Maybe some particular sideline in the scotch game or something and before the game, you know? And of course, if you repeat something for two, three hours and you already have some background, then yeah, it might look like you just know certain moves of theory everywhere. But the reality is that a lot of people, they have this, you know, very little information in their kind of, you know, dynamic operational memory, right? And of course, I have a lot of ideas, right? Committed to long-term memory. But really, if you dragged out a player rate at 24, 2500 and didn't let them prepare at all, like ever, you will see completely different theoretical battles. So a lot of the games that people praise as some insane theoretical duel, it's just because, a lot, you know, a lot of this has been reviewed straight before the game, right? And so, you know, not knowing that, I think a lot of amateur and club players who is you know, what, who I mostly teach in person, right? And who mostly buys courses and studies courses. I mean, a lot of these people, they just kind of get the wrong idea, right? And there is no point in studying 20 moves of theory, like almost ever, almost for anyone. I'm not talking about top 10, but well, you know, if your name is Lanier Dominguez or Caruana and you bought my course, say hi, right? But besides that, <laughs> I mean, for most people, there is no point. So yeah, I mean, why, why would you write something that no one needs to read, you know? Yeah, that's that's another amazing thing about about Chessable, uh, like how um, every now and then you'll be watching one of these Air Things Masters tournaments or like the Olympia, and you'll see that some super GM is taking some you know some IM's course on Chessable and following it like you know down to like eighteen twenty moves. I mean that that is really special to me. I think it, it really like you know says uh, it, sh- it says a lot about the power of Chessable as a tool. Oh yeah, for sure, and I think that a lot of you know sharp minds and young you know authors came recently and wrote a lot of good things. And generally, my philosophy has been, in my experience, when I, you know, work my way through some books and strategy of, you know, for club players looking for materials for my students. I mean, in my experience, no matter how someone, you know, praises the book, I cannot use the entire book. I find some examples to be pointless and some I really like. And on the other, of course, if the book is good, then I like more of them. But then someone says this book is garbage, you know, and usually there are still some examples that I really like, just not that many. You know, so I have never seen in my life a single or maybe, okay, I can literally name them on, you know, the fingers of one hand. I mean, I haven't seen a single (coughs) chess book that I like, you know, all of it. So I think it's important that almost any author, you know, they might not, and including myself, right, maybe there's a chapter I'm particularly proud of. And I think the idea shown there could beat any 26, 2700 GM, right, unless they know it. And on the other hand, some chapters say, okay, they're not as theoretical, theoretically challenging, but for a club player, well, perfectly good, can play as it for, you know, all of your life. And for a grandmaster, okay, they might want to look for a slightly different, more, you know, challenging solution, right, if they want an advantage. So, yeah, I mean, generally, I had conversations, you know, private conversations with a lot of friends, right, the 26, 2700, and they actually are familiar with pretty much every single just book and course written and available in the world. And they think that most of them are bad, you know, all of them. But I mean, not, not, not bad, but I mean, just for a different target audience, you know. And uh, but at the same time, I think everyone has an opinion that in almost every book or course, there's like one or two or five ideas that you can take away, even if there's, you know, 500 total, but still, you know, good enough, right? Yeah, that's, um, you know, for example, like the Scandinavian, right? I, I watch a lot of GM Hikaru as uh, people, longtime listeners of the podcast know. And 
the way he talks about the Scandinavian played between 2700s compared to between like you know 1500 when he's doing a speed run, his attitude is completely different. Um, so I think that that's very true, like uh, the kind of the approach and the level. But you know, as I see it, most people who are improving in chess or playing chess will never reach anything close to the master level, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. I've improved a lot in the last, you know, four years or so, but I'm not reaching that that summit. I know I'm not. I have another job and I have other passions, and that's fine. So I think, you know, the, the for me, the goal of chess improvement is should always feel fun. It should never feel like you're, uh, you know, you're doing a hundred variations on chess because you have to. That's uh, that's when I think if you, if I saw some some guy on Twitter said like chess. Uh, he was trying to reach some rating goal, and someone said like, bro, like relax. And he was like, oh no, but chess is about the pain. No, it's not. It's not about the pain. It's a game. It's fun. It should be fun. Obviously, there's like a point where you have to study, and that's painful, but it's not about the pain. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I think there are a few interesting takeaways from this, and yeah, I think that you offered a couple, you know, really instructive insights. So, you know, one thing that I would not agree with, right, about chess is a pain, but I mean, kind of can relate is where someone plays professionally, and, you know, for example, I myself, uh, ever since being a small child, even before playing chess, I loved reading books, right? And so I loved stories, you know? And so then when I started studying chess, well, I loved stories. What were the stories? Books on positional play, strategy, chess players, biographies. In Russian, I'm not sure, you know, since you have the <coughs> Ukrainian background, so you might know. So in Russian, there is a series called the Black Series. We call it Black Series. And essentially, it's a series of books. There's like 150 or 200 of them about pretty much every grandmaster that has been born in the Soviet Union and some outside. And so, you know, I've read pretty much every single one of those books, I think. And at the same time, what's interesting, you know, my students, please, you know, shut your ears, don't say, don't listen to what I'm going to say next. I always hated solving tactics. And I mean, not hated, you know, obviously I take solving tactics over, you know, doing something, I, I you know, not chess, right? But I mean, in, in, inside of the game of chess, I would always prefer working on strategy rather than having to solve puzzles. And even when my style was still tactical, you know, when I was younger. And so it's interesting that, well, obviously, at some point I realized, you know, hey, I'm a kind of not a professional player in terms of making a living, but I'm really taking this activity professionally. You know, I'm 17 years old. I'm skipping university to go to tournaments every month. Right. And so, you know, like kind of I want to make some progress. You know, I don't want to just play it for fun. I also want some progress. In fact, all I want is some progress. Give me some progress. And my weakest point is tactics. I lose a lot of games because of that. Well, I have to do something about it. So probably even if I don't like this aspect of chess as much as others, well, I have to focus on it, you know. But then on the other hand, I think it's important to realize that for while for a professional player, it could make sense to commit to doing something they don't want as much to overcome some problem because, well, really, in professional activities, you know, often there's a need for some sacrifice. I think for club players, I often emphasize it. There's a big difference between doing something for fun, right? And for, I think that it's like if someone likes studying end games and that's all they want and they don't really need the end games, I have nothing against them doing it except for I just want them to be aware that's not the best way for them to improve. But if they know and if they're okay with that, well, they're having fun. Let people have fun, you know, let, 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 let's have people enjoy, right? So, I mean, you know, when I started teaching chess, I admit I'm completely guilty. You know, I was um, 16, turning 17 years old and I had a couple of students. I had no idea what people wanted because, you know, I always wanted to get better. And so I thought, well, everyone wants to get better, but a lot of people just wanted to have fun. And so, you know, I kind of had to rethink my perspective, right? 
So <clears throat> I think it's important that one, you just don't get self-delusional thinking if you, you know, learn 500 variations, you'll magically improve. But if you like doing that, if that what, you know, gives you some relief, right? And, you know, kind of, yeah, I mean, then why not do it? And then on the other hand, um, yeah, one more thing that I wanted to say, I think that a lot of people who have, <coughs> well, some very kind of extreme ambition, especially, or I mean, they're just misinformed. So I think a big problem I've noticed, and I'd like to encourage people to take a different perspective at that. Um, a lot of people don't uh, want to learn openings, which are considered to be subpar. There is, you know, tier one, right? Like neither Sicilian or Berlin, right? But there is also, I mean, say Karakan, right? Nothing wrong with it or modern defense, you know, or, you know, 1B3, right? For white. I mean, I think that what's really important is that while, I mean, if you're rated 2000 or 2500 even, let alone 1600, which is what most of our listeners and people who study, you know, uh, are just statistically, you know, anywhere, right? Then it does not make any difference if there's theoretical advantage or not. <laughs> it literally does not make any difference. What if tomorrow, you know, artificial intelligence solved chess and it turned out that one E4 wins, you know? Well, would you stop playing one D4 just because of this conclusion? It doesn't make any, any difference to anyone or it shouldn't, you know? And then for the same reason, a lot of people, I heard they say things like, you know, I only need to learn from a 2800 player because a 2200 player, they still don't know chess well enough themselves, right? And so they can teach me something wrong. And I mean, obviously, I understand where this logic is coming from, but I think that a lot of people, and understandably, because let's say if you start as 800 and then in a month you're 1200, you know, you would think, well, the 2200 is not that far, you know, but really, <coughs> I think that a reasonable comparison to make here would be, you know, a player rated 2200 has... And there's an enormous gap, right, between a club player and, say, 2200 feet, a title player in terms of positional understanding and strategic play. So I think that not wanting to learn from them is more or less comparable to saying that the only person, if I want to learn, say, you know, how to manage my money or how to invest, I'll only listen to, you know, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. I wouldn't listen to someone worth $20 million. I mean, they're an idiot, right? I mean, exactly. they have so exactly. much less, you know? Exactly, yes. But I mean, for most people and some people, I mean, if your ambitions are this high, you know, then, well, you might want to listen to both of them. But for most people, you know, 20 million would do. So for most people, you're not ever getting to 2200, not because of your lack of talent, but because probably, you know, unless you're young, right, life could get in the way. There's a lot of other activities. It's just a big commitment, you know. And even if you are, you know, then, well, go ahead and listen to more experienced players later. So I just want to encourage people to stop thinking this way for many reasons, but this is one of the main ones, yeah. I mean, Magnus Carlsen gets coached from a guy who's rated lower than him. So if he can learn, you know, that's, I think, uh, one of the, you know, every now and then you see this on Twitter or on the chess forums, like, oh, who's coaching? Oh, I'll only take an IM. When realistically, if like, you can be coached by somebody who's only 200 or 300 ELO points more than you and learn a lot. Like, uh, there's so always something to learn, uh, you know, and no, I think, I think you're on the money, like, but it, it's hard. Chess, chess improvement is really difficult. Um, I've been trying, you know, it's funny cause I got this chess sponsorship, but I've actually kind of been trying to pivot away from, from chess improvement because I do worry, I, I've talked about this in other podcast episodes and actually on other podcasts, but I do worry that, uh, again, Twitter is a small sample size, right? It's, it's really the people who are most dedicated most obsessed. Um, but, but still, I mean, you, you do kind of look at some people who are, it's all about rating. It's all about, you know, reaching certain things at certain times, but I, I think chess is a game. I actually, I started playing over the board here in Denmark and it's been so much more enjoyable. Like I, I've, I'm losing most of my games, but man, like, uh, 
you, you you get the chess culture you really get the competition for three hours you're not worrying about blitz games you're not worrying about you know like a one because let's say you play rapid on chess.com you're going for one idea if it works it works if not you lose meanwhile in a three three hour four hour chess game you have to like really the ideas become deeper the moves are more elegant even even at a you know my level which is much lower than and that's been a joy for me but that's because i'm just enjoying the just playing chess too obviously i want to get better i think everybody has uh Maybe that's not true, but most people, when you're doing something, you want to like get good at it, right? It's a human instinct, I think. Um, so you want to get better. I pay a coach to improve, but still, like at the end of the day, if you're not enjoying it, what's the point? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, it's funny you just uh, brought up the thing saying that the ideas are more elegant in classical games instead of blitz, and I just recalled that we were arguing with someone yes, recently, some friend of mine, a grandmaster, and um, I said that. Uh, the, <laughs> there are two time controls I like and one I hate that I hate rapid because the thing is that when you play blitz you know it's fun and you are not supposed to take it seriously and you can win you can lose and if you play classical chess well you really take it seriously and hopefully it's interesting and deep but rapid is kind of in nowhere and I mean okay for a lot of club players I don't want to discourage them because 10 plus 0 or 15 plus 10 are great time controls for them you know but at the same time <clears throat> yeah I feel like you know say uh, I mean, well, generally, the more experience you get, I think, the easier it is to play faster time controls in a more kind of reasonable way. But generally, the point is that, yeah, I agree completely. I think that, uh, to me personally, the biggest pleasure I've uh, derived from chess has always been from classical chess. Not that playing Blitz until 4 a.m. has not been fun, you know, but really, I mean, classical chess, I think, is the absolute kind of peak. And uh, I highly recommend to anyone who hasn't done that yet to play an over-the-board tournament at least once. And I'm sure that, well, that could, you know, create a fantastic experience. It, it is really a remarkable experience. I'd say, you know, I, I mean, my local club is a Marshall Chess Club, and I can't say enough nice things about it. But also being in Europe, completely different experience, honestly. I, I, and this is something I actually wanted to ask you about, because I know you came a couple of years ago to America from, from Ukraine. Uh, to, you played for the Webster team, right? Webster University. Correct. Um, the, I'm sure you've been to the St. Louis Chess Club many times. Ooh. What is the club culture like in Ukraine compared to America? Yeah, so I can answer this question both, well, more, I mean, this question and a bit more broadly. So it's interesting. I'll actually give you a bit of background. So how I even ended up coming to America. So yeah, sure. um, I was doing undergraduate in Ukraine. Um, and uh, actually, I found out that, well, one of the uh, chess players who used to go to my chess club and uh, was a student of my college. He's, I think, seven years older than me, moved to America, to Texas Tech. And I think that was the first, first person who did that. And, well, the thing is, <coughs> in Texas Tech, the coach is uh, from Ukraine as well, Alexander Onishuk. And so uh, several other players, actually, of my age, ended up moving there over the course of the next year as well. And so I found out about, you know, the fact that chess scholarships are a huge thing in America this way. And I was initially planning on going there, actually. But uh, yeah, I mean, then I ended up going to Webster, right? With it being, well, I mean, the number one chess school. Uh, and, you know, I thought that would be a really interesting experience with such an amazing team. And it has been, absolutely. But one thing is that, so when this, you know, good friend of mine moved to America, right, well, he would welcome back for the summer and uh, he would tell me, you know, some stories about how American chess works and <coughs> playing, <coughs> playing in Europe, sorry, playing in Europe, it was common to play an event, which is say nine rounds and nine days, or sometimes nine rounds and say seven days or six, you know, like a round and then two, one, two, one, two, et cetera. But in America, I was told it's very common to play literally two rounds every day, or sometimes I've even heard of someone playing three classical games in a day. And I've heard 
uh, a friend of mine rated 2600 was meeting someone rated 2730 and uh, you know to some tournaments you need to bring your own board and clock and they couldn't start a game because none of them <laughs> brought a clock and a set and this is you know i just put i thought that he was just making fun of me right i thought that's like there is no way something like that can happen right really like it's like you come to an you know ice rink okay skating rink and there's no ice you know like i mean bring her on i mean i just couldn't <laughs> but actually to be honest uh lately i started growing you know kind of more and more passion for the way american tournaments work even though the answer might sound surprising because what i realized was really kind of tripping me into european tournaments my whole life and uh, is that like for example let's say you play one game a day and what i've been doing less so as i got more experience but <coughs> definitely a lot more when i was you know 16 years old 17 a lot of energy a lot of ambition not a lot of understanding what to do with your energy and ambition and so what i would do let's say i have a game at 5 p.m you know and then in the meantime well in the morning you know who you're playing and so i would prepare for like six seven hours every day and then what happens is that you come to a game you're a little tired but the main point really that I took away from this is that well I mean you can <coughs> repeat a lot of lines but you can't really like learn a new opening for a game right well that's not very smart you know and what I really understood is that as a result a lot of time you spend on chess is really kind of wasted you know reviewing the same lines over and over and over and instead to me I think it's much better to play a tournament in five days, days rather than nine and then spend five more days <coughs> working on chess extensively, but maybe tackling a whole new different subject, you know, because no one wants, you know, one hour before they're playing a game to look at some broken game, right? Because you think, well, what if my opponent plays a Sicilian, right? But uh, if there's no tournament, if it's over, then you can actually devote your time to anything you want and maybe improving at something big. And so, <coughs> and so actually, I started uh, liking the American format where tournaments are playing being played at a faster pace a lot more and well i think that it of course has to do in america historically right which is american culture and just understanding of well life you know but uh, yeah somehow it's interesting you see i got americanized in this regard right which neither neither the american you know listeners nor the european listeners will appreciate hearing <laughs> but yeah i mean in europe of course it's completely different well in europe most of the chess tournaments i think are organized uh, based on local sponsors, you know, and people who take pride in the fact that chess exists in their community. And, uh, you know, often it's, say, some small towns, right, or some small businesses. And in America, most tournaments are run, run for profit, right? So it also explains why things work this way. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of how things stand. Yeah, no, I, I, I you, you think you hit it on the head. Um, I, I think also, like, in terms of uh, club culture in Denmark, I've been, I've really just kind of enjoyed, uh, Again, I mean, I, I've been I'm in the Marshall Chess Club. I, I've paid membership. Now I'm not paying membership because I'm not there. But uh, I, I've been a paying member for like a year. And um, well, I don't know what I find interesting there too is like um, we don't really have like these team events. Like I'm on a, I'm on a league team now. I have I'm playing on next Tuesday, and I'm you know I'm playing with people who are between like fourteen sixteen hundred fide, and but we still have opportunities to play competitive chess like in a team setting. Uh, that is very. I'm sure it was like this, you know, in Ukraine too. It's like this in most of Europe. I wish there was more of that in America. I really wish there was kind of, I know that there's a team championships, like team North, team East, team West, but I'm really talking about just in a local level. Uh, maybe that requires getting more people over the board, which is why I completely agree with what you said. Like if you haven't played over the board tournament, this is your time. Uh, COVID restrictions are getting lighter and lighter. If you've been, you know, triple vax, blah, blah, blah. Like it, it's the time is now to check it out because it's it's such a rich experience it's so fun to sit with someone analyze a game especially if you have a good battle like 
it's uh it's it's great and you will improve a lot from it too i think yeah i agree completely and uh yeah <laughs> just yeah i i agree 100 percent yeah the, the last thing i wanted to ask you so obviously you came you came uh, to america for i guess you you did you did a master's degree here in business i think uh finance finance right and uh but you also played for the webster university team coached by yeah, uh, susan right. susan polgar legend right. chess legend of course and um yeah it's something i wanted to ask you so like you played the you played the spice cup uh it took five out of five out of nine i think i did my homework mm -hmm. i read um, but you also got your international master title during COVID, October 2020. You got your final norm and you crossed 2400. So what was that like? Yeah, so, you know, it's actually really interesting because uh, stepping a little bit back, <coughs> the hunt for the norms, I think, started in 2017. And uh, I remember I got my first norm. And then for like 10 or 12 tournaments in a row, speaking to adult improvers about persistence for 10 or 12 tournaments in a row in every single one of them if i won the decisive game i would get the norm and every single one every single time i lost you know and except for one will where i won you know but i mean overall like one out of 12 does not sound like a very convincing you know result then eventually i realized that this was not working and i was putting too much pressure on myself and i just drew a lot of games like that later because i realized well okay i mean this what this right you just play i mean you also need to worry about rating and then when I came to America, naturally, you know, meeting so many amazing players, meeting Susan, who has been amazing, not just as a coach, but also as a person, and really helped out all the, you know, uh, I mean, everyone made everyone feel like, you know, home, like family, and uh, a big shout out to her. She's been fantastic. And meeting all the chess players from our, you know, community, from our team, who have been great as well. I got so much motivation to work on the game, and I did for about two months. Uh, since coming from August to October. And then in October, I got the second Norman Spice, Spice Cup. And then I got invited to a St. Louis uh, Chess Club Invitational with the last uh, for the IM Norm. And so this was a tournament round robin where I was um, actually the highest rated player and um, scoring six and a half out of nine would give me the norm and the rating. And, you know, just before a week or two ago, I played Spice Cup where I haven't lost a single game facing like 2,600 opponents. So I thought, okay, done. Thank you for the norm. And I ended up scoring something like three or three and a half out of nine and lost like 35 rating points. So that was not <coughs> very good. And then we played the Pan American uh, Intercollegiate Chess Championship where uh, I did really well. And actually, the teams that I played for, we had four teams representing Webster. And A and B were uh, consisted of Grandmasters only. But actually, our C team had one GM, I think one international master and two FIDE masters and we somehow scored the second place and <laughs> made it to the final four which actually was never held because of the pandemic but essentially as you can see I had a huge amount of work that I've put into the game since coming during that time period but then uh, actually when COVID started I ended up in Ukraine uh, in March of 2020 also a bit by accident because I traveled there and then the borders closed so I was there and then I came back for another uh, fall semester and um, I was playing the I am Invitational in Charlotte, North Carolina. And <coughs> actually during that half a year, I literally didn't work on chess like at all. I mean, I was studying, I was doing a lot of writing. I was, you know, doing my university classes online at like 3 a.m., right? Because of the time difference. So I didn't put like any effort in my chess, but I guess the effort that I had put in half a year before had paid off. I mean, I had prepared a little bit before the event itself. Well, I'm already here, but not as much. So very often, actually, in chess, what I've noticed and what I always tell my students, there is 
I mean, huge, huge delayed gratification. Often you put the work in and you don't see it for half a year, for a year, right? Especially as a higher level you are. And um, there's a lot of ways to explain that. But for example, let's say if you work on some Rukan games and you spend a lot of effort working on Rukan games and you would think, well, where's my improvement? But then it just so happens you play two tournaments and there's not a single Rukan game, right, in your games. And so... It's not that your work has been pointless, but you just don't have a chance to benefit from it, like in any possible way. But maybe in half a year, you'll have a tournament where like every game will see a Rukan game, right? Or instead, <coughs> you learn the slav defense, but no one plays D4. And so you think, well, I mean, where is this work, you know, going to? So this is kind of what happened to me as well, I think. And then I had two good tournaments, another Spice Cup uh, after that one where I got my last uh, I'm Norm. And well, yeah, kind of we got where we got. So yeah, I mean that's uh, that's a, a journey in short. In it's amazing, amazing story. And um, wanted to ask you two questions. First of all, so you uh, were, did you get a scholarship to play chess at Webster? Yeah, correct. Actually, I applied for <coughs> I applied to several universities uh, for a scholarship, and yeah, I mean I ended up choosing Webster. But yes, I did because of course you know through the Singfield family chess in St. Louis. I know St. Louis University also has a team. I think every except maybe Washington University of St. Louis. I think each of them has a, has a, every team in like St. Louis has like a strong, or even Missouri, I think Missouri as well. They, all of them have scholarship players playing chess, which is crazy. Because this yeah, must be the only true. state with Texas that actually offers chess scholarships on a chess team, like a varsity team. Um, I would imagine that there has to be more teams in more states than that, but for sure, Missouri and Texas are the biggest ones by far. And yeah, we had Webster. I mean, we have Webster. And when I came, there were eight grandmasters on our team. And in St. Louis University, there were eight grandmasters on their That's team. Crazy. And then they started Miss Lou as well. And there were, I think, five grandmasters. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is absolutely crazy, especially because, and I think now in America, there's about, I don't want to, you know, put in some absolutely random number and be responsible, but I think about 70 to 80 grandmasters studying on chess scholarships right now. And then, yeah, I mean, this is incredible. And I, th- I mean, really, it's good for everyone, you know? uh in that regards as well i mean the chess players obviously get some kind of red gratification for their effort too because i think that a lot of people who come here i mean they come and then they want to stay right they potentially want to work here i think the country benefits massively as well right from the inflow of you know brain power but uh yeah it's really interesting because i think one of the biggest well not biggest problems but one of the big problems for sure in the chess community especially in the wealthier countries with the you know better standard of living and not say you know ukraine or russia or whatever um where chess playing chess could be considered a good job right and say denmark parents would say well okay you know uh kid you need to actually go to school right and do something reasonable like stop you know i mean this game is fun but you know you need to get a job right and so i think that for a lot of you know the parents of the young children children right now or not sure whether playing chess could be more than just a good hobby, you know, realizing that there's literally dozens, if not hundreds already scholarships that you can get to even very good schools, you know, because you're a strong chess player is very inspiring and might actually motivate these kids to work even harder because there's not just the final goal of becoming another Magnus Carlsen, you know, but also, you know, and now there's really a lot of ways, right, to make a living with chess, right, starting from coaching to Twitch to, you know, being a player to whatever. But I think understanding that actually you can move on to maybe some professional field by using a chess, uh, you know, to get a scholarship and to get a great experience at the university is also a very good thing, a very good trend. Right. And Susan actually... You know, yeah, Susan actually was one of the uh, very first people to, you know, develop this trend, right? She started at Texas Tech and then moved to Webster. 
But yeah, then a lot of programs emerged, but she was definitely quite a bit of a trailblazer here. And even before, I just read uh, Jennifer Shahadi's book, uh, Chess Queens, and they taught Susan Polger opened uh, Girls Camp in Forest Hills, where actually my cousin went for two years, was being coached by Susan Polger. And she did it basically, didn't have to, could have lived in Hungary, but she really loved America and she really loved it. She believed in the future of American chess. And you see 20 years later, like, just like you said, like now you're starting to see this next generation and it's paying off. And I, I mean, to me, the one thing that I've always kind of wished is that there'd be more money in chess for everybody that, that, uh, cause you know, let's say tennis, obviously tennis is much more popular, but the equivalent of a FIDE master in tennis, in terms of playing ability could probably make a couple hundred thousand playing tennis. Whereas if you're a FIDE master, if you're not writing courses or, or coaching, you probably won't make any money off of, off of chess, despite being, you know, top 0.001% of chess players in the world. So um, you know, so I, that is something I hope to see. And I hope that, you know, that I hope that what we're seeing in America right now is like a real, like a foundation for, for a long lasting competitive chess culture. It's not going to start today. It's not going to start tomorrow unless, you know, listeners of the podcast start playing OTB, start chasing those titles, you know, repping the podcast on your t-shirt, you know, the, with the merch that I'll make someday. But until then, uh, you know, that, that, that's, I think the dream you want, you, I always want to see more people playing chess and playing cause they enjoy and because, you know, that that's i think the the dream for me in america especially that sounds very inspiring yeah i you know (coughs) i always thought of chess as of something that is absolutely amazing for uh helping children create a you know foundation for successful life in terms of teaching of course well all the things we know about decision making right I think very importantly, something we really lack in modern society, not to point fingers at anyone, personal responsibility. I think that really chess, right? I mean, you, you know, play on your own, you win or you lose, it's your fault or your gain. And uh, a lot of other things, of course, respect for your opponent, the ability to think what the other party wants in anything, in business, in negotiations, it's very important. But at the same time, of course, chess has never been a good field to make a living in, right? Unless, as you said, you make it in <coughs> top 10 or top 15. And I'm very glad it's changing. And actually, you know, I find it very uh, logical that a big part of, you know, people's ability to make money, make a living in chess comes from teaching or from creating content or from Twitch. Because I think the <coughs> well problem is really, I mean, I, know I would love, you know, competitive chess to get a lot bigger and for the pie to kind of, well, not just get bigger, but also spread kind of down, right? trickle down to, you know, top 200 or 500 or a thousand, right? But at the same time now, I mean, you just see the direct idea that you get rewarded for creating value. You know, teaching is creating value, right? Or writing is creating value. And a lot of people are actually able to access that, you know? And it's just amazing how big some of these chess platforms and businesses have grown, right? It truly is. I mean, like, for example, I think chess.com now has like, what, 70 million members. I mean, it's incredible, right? How big chess community is. And some of these people maybe played like chess once in their life and never logged in again. But still, you know, <laughs> the growth in the last years, both due to, you know, pandemic, right? And to, you know, Queen's Gambit uh, on Netflix and to the explosion on, of chess on Twitch. I mean, it has been amazing, but I'm really happy that the idea of, you know, being able to create value in this field, right, which has become, of course, possible through technology to is, you know, now clearly emerging, right, and it's maturing, and yeah, it's just very exciting. And certainly for, you know, uh, even resources like Chessable, um, where, you know, anyone can really, you know, if you have a Chessable Pro membership, that's all you need if you want to create a course and you never know what will happen, like the 1500 created, you know, this endgame tactics book that's like the most popular book on Chessable, and this was just the average club player who was just like, 
what are all the end game patterns that people should i'm sorry all the checkmate patterns that that people should know and uh i think that's very powerful like the the access to information it's it's all kind of come together so um yeah i i th that's definitely true like in terms of creating value um yeah i don't know it's it's it's, it's been an interesting journey for sure like uh even I you, you mentioned something about like kids, and I even think you know uh, adults too. There's so much to benefit from playing chess. I'm not talking about people who you know played pseudo intellectual, pseudo intellectually. You know, say oh I I start I'm a chess player. Da 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 da. You want to buy my my crypto project? <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking like about like you know people like I, when I started I was like 18. My my, my grandfather who's uh, born in Ternopil, uh, he he taught me how to play when I was like two years old. And uh, I knew how to move the pieces, but then I started watching these like Agamotor videos and end of high school. I watched, uh, actually it was in St. Louis's champion showdown in 2017 with like Gary and Fabiano and Hikaru. And I was like, wow, there are all these American players that are like super strong. I didn't know that. I don't know who knew. So you go from that and now like, uh, I, I, it's chess has helped me so much. I, I study astrophysics for, for a living. I'm a researcher right now in, in Denmark and it chess has helped me slow down. It's helped me really learn how to just sit down and think for like an hour or two i mean these are skills that i'm going to benefit from for the rest of my life and that's all because of chess so i, I really think there's someone for everybody so yeah i, mean, I don't need to tell you why great. chess is a great game but yeah well, one of the big things things i think is the ability to do research even though i mean right now probably i'm going to get a little bit of you know laughing from you as well speaking of crypto i am currently working on I'm not anti-crypto. I'm not anti-crypto, yeah. but I just I, wanted to make. No, I, I, I'm working on. I'm trying to write my first non-chess book, and so this book will be about finance more broadly and about say failure of financial systems and banks in most of the world and how most people just don't have the access to proper you know financial <coughs> tools and how crypto is designed to, to solve many of these problems. So this is not about you know hey we're all going to get rich in a month right. It's about something different, the development of technology. But it's actually really interesting, right? The uh, even emergence of this technologies that I've been, you know, that I've dived very rather deeply into lately, I just find all of my chess skills to be, and well, I guess you can say my finance degree as well, probably less so actually than my chess skills to be very helpful as well. Yeah. And my ability to, you know, process information and do research. So yeah, that's really interesting. I like, I, I go on Lee chess and I, I always, and I use chessable too. It's like you, you can like create your little repertoire for yourself. Although I don't have a pro membership, so I only can do this once, but like, I I will research crazy lines and I'll study them with my coach, like, you know, 15, 20 moves deep. And I'll do this insane opening prep for opponents OTB or just these insane lines that I learn. That's all like, you know, that's the research that I do that, like, that having that discipline. But it's also I wouldn't have that discipline if not for chess. So it's it's this whole system that is. It's it always shocks me. It really, you know, I've been playing this game for four years. I'm not that much, but it, it really shocks me how much there is to learn from chess all the time. Like you, can, you really can never stop. So that's why I always think that like, you know, chess improvement can always be fun. There's always something you can learn that's going to be enjoyable. If you don't like, you know, studying tactics, if you don't like the end game stuff, uh, at some point you do need it, right? But like most of us will never get there. So it's important to make it fun, I think. Yeah, I think totally. And I think that because, as you said, journey is endless. It's a bit scary. It's, it's, it's a f f fantastic and it's, you know, uh, fascinating. It's also a bit scary. The journey is endless. And so I think that, your ability to actually have as much fun along the way as possible is extremely important. But uh, yes, I do agree that it's fascinating. Well, we don't need to advertise chess right, chess. Yeah, I don't right. know what we're talking about, but yes, it's 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 incredible. After all these years, you know, I'm writing a course or I'm analyzing something for a student, and I find some idea I've never seen before, and I just think, well, that's that's very impressive. You know, how could that happen?
So yeah. <laughs> so you said you're writing a course on on chessboard now. You, you mentioned it's the French, right? Correct. It's can it's you, already written actually. It's already yeah, written. So, I mean, hopefully, yeah. Can you give a, a little teaser of, of what it's gonna be, or are you still trying to keep it keep it? Uh, uh, no, <coughs> there, there isn't much of a secret. So as always, uh, there will be a huge focus on model games. I think there's over 20 of them, and a huge focus on typical pawn structures, ideas, plans, because French defense generally tends to be about well pawn chains. And so yeah, I mean for me, every opening has a little bit of a philosophy behind it and maybe at least assume philosophy like say you play as a modern defender as a dragon because you want a sharp position you know you don't want to play it because i guess you can you can nowadays play it because you want to learn 27 moves and give a perpetual check right but generally it's kind of supposed to be fun you know and say you play some super you know solid i don't know like whatever exchange spanish with white because you want an end game and a quiet game you know and so for me the french has always been about the pawn structures about maneuvering play and so a big part um, overwhelming part of this course is about just a few very clear strategic ideas that we are trying to pursue literally throughout the course like everywhere you know and um, a big part another big part of the course is about a very cheeky move pawn to g5 which will you'll Sick. all see when it comes out but uh, essentially about uh, seeing how also zero is able to bend common sense and chess apparently and do something that you know if i had done 15 like say 40 50 years ago in a chess club in the soviet union i would just get kicked out and told to never come there again <laughs> you know so uh it's it's a combination of both but generally just like always i focus my writing on ideas and plans yeah and not as much sharp theory Last question I'll ask you, um, when you're playing like a exchange, let's say when you're playing like an advanced French kind of structure, you know, close pawn chains, would you rather attack um, the pawn chain with the move like F6 or C5? Uh, mostly C5. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, but sometimes I'm, F6. I'm an F6 guy myself. Um, but Fair enough. Know. Yeah. Um, where, where can my listeners find you? Uh, you have a Twitter account, right? And you, obviously your chessable courses that are pretty affordable yeah. actually too. Yeah, so there's a ch well, there's a ch <coughs> sorry, there's a chessable account with the chessable courses, uh, chess.com profile, where I actually wrote a lot of articles and created some content too. Um, Lich's profile with my coaching reviews and uh, well, a bit of kind of bio on who I am and what I do. Uh, of course, Twitter profile where I sometimes write about chess. Um, well, hopefully more and more. Um, and yeah, I would think that's pretty much it. I've, uh, tried, uh, you know, dabbling into YouTube and Twitch a little bit, but I've decided to postpone that for now and focus on other things, but there's also YouTube, uh, YouTube and Twitch if you, if you're interested. And, uh, yeah, I mean, primarily the thing to focus now is on creating content. Yeah. Right. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, it's another great episode of 64 chess podcast. If you like what you listen to. Leave a review. Spotify is uh, usually what I share on Twitter. And uh, you can leave reviews on Spotify now, uh, rating reviews. I don't know about rating reviews yet. But uh, if you like the show, uh, give that a five star. Helps a lot with the algorithm. Uh, you can also leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, basically. Don't forget to uh, to leave a nice review uh, for the podcast if you enjoyed it. Uh, follow me on Twitter at 64podcasts. We're almost at 1,000 followers. I'll be doing a huge giveaway at 1,000 followers. So stay tuned for that. And um, yeah, I have a Patreon if you want to contribute to the show. Little as a dollar a month, patreon.com slash 64 podcast. I want to thank my sponsors, uh, Chessable, for sponsoring the show. Uh, very grateful for that. I also want to thank Aim Chess as always for sponsoring the show. You can use code David30 to get 30% off your Aim Chess uh, first month. So go check all that out. And uh, 
guys, I'll hear from you guys in a couple of days. I'm recording a bunch of episodes in this month, so uh, stay tuned for all that. And I hope you guys are, are staying safe and praying for peace. Slava Ukraini and uh, right. Heroem Slava. Yeah. But then again, if you are saying you'll give a giveaway to a thousand followers, I mean, I'll chip in and I'll do one too. So you know, follow. Let's have a competition. Yeah, let's <laughs> follow. Anyway. Yeah, follow follow Yuri Krikun on uh, on Twitter, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll be doing giveaways at a thousand followers. So if you haven't given him a follow, uh, check him out on Twitter. Uh, this was really a pleasure. Enjoy this episode a lot. Thanks for giving your thoughts on Ukraine. Thanks for sharing uh, a bit about your career, and uh, uh, maybe we'll see GM uh, Yuri Krikun soon. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. And I'm glad that we got to talk about all the, you know, important and interesting topics today. And, uh, well, we'll see about the GM, but uh, we'll, be, we'll be trying working on uh, Hashtag adult improvers. There you go. Yeah. All right. Take it easy and I'll see you guys next week. Thank you so much.